Welcome to episode 19 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Tiffany Walker, resident at University of Nevada School of Medicine, Las Vegas, and a former RSA Education Committee co-chair, speaks with Dr. Joel Schofer, Navy Emergency Medicine Specialty Leader at Navy Medical Center Portsmouth and former AAEM board member. Today, Drs. Walker and Schofer discuss how to develop a career in emergency medicine. In this episode, I, Dr. Tiffany Walker Siegel, will be speaking with Dr. Joel Schofer, a Fellow of the Academy of Emergency Medicine, Certified Physician Executive, Commander in the Medical Corps of the U.S. Navy, an AEM board member, Associate Professor of Military and Emergency Medicine at the Uniformed Services, University of Health Sciences, and also holds a Master's in Business Association and is fellowship trained in ultrasound. He has over 110 professional publications, has held leadership positions within the U.S. Navy's largest emergency department since 2009, held numerous national and state leadership positions in AEM, and won several national academic and education awards. We are honored to have Dr. Schofer here with us today discussing building a career in emergency medicine. Hey, Tiffany. How are you? Doing well. How are you doing today? Great. You want me to start? Yes, sir. All right. So I'm going to talk about six steps to build a career in emergency medicine during your residency. Uh, just as a disclaimer, the views I'm expressing are my own and not the, the position of the Department of the Navy, Department of Defense, or the United States government. How do you like that? Wonderful. So I think probably the first thing people are going to ask is, who is this guy and why is he talking about this stuff? So I just want to briefly run through some of the things that I was able to achieve during my residency to give you, give you an idea of the things I did that I feel really guided my career down the line and why I think this is an important topic. So I was chief resident. I had 33 publications when I was a resident. Now, they weren't all peer-reviewed publications, but included a textbook, four textbook chapters, six peer-reviewed articles, six online articles, and 16 national newsletter articles. So you can see a lot of variety there. I was a peer reviewer for three emergency medicine journals. I was on a bunch of boards of directors for RSA and the AAM main board. I was on 11 national emergency medicine committees, unfortunately for me, <laughs> and uh, I did a, a rotation at the ABC News Medical Unit, which is something that's a little unique. I uh, won the Research Achievement Award and ultimately got the CORD Emergency Medicine Resident Academic Achievement Award of the Year. So, you know, I did a lot during residency. It was a busy time, but I feel like the things you do during residency can really impact your career down the line. So. Now that's what I want to talk about. Six steps to impact your career as a resident. Great. First step is I think that everybody really needs to take a strong assessment of their career aspirations. And I think there's really two different dimensions of your career, and this will likely change over time, but you want to look at your career and think, am I going to be you know, more in the community or am I going to be academic? And obviously there's a lot of practice settings where you'll combine the two some community practices that have residents. But the other dimension would be, are you going to be exclusively clinical, try to be exclusively administrative, some combination of the two. And then there's people like Sanjay Gupta, who, you know, are physicians, and Dr. Oz, 
and other people like that who decide to go on a completely different path. And there are certainly people in residency with those kind of aspirations. So really the first step is try to figure out what you want to do because you don't really want to spend time on things that are steering you in a different direction from where you want to wind up. Quick question for you. Sure. How do you go about figuring that out? That's a good question. I mean, what I did was I tried to get myself exposed to as many different things as I could. So as early as possible, I could figure out what I really like doing. Uh, you know, I, I tried to publish papers so I could see whether I would like being academic. Mm-hmm. I put myself on committees in the hospital. So I would see if I liked being a hospital administrator and contributing to that realm of things. And as I mentioned, I spent a month at ABC News during my fourth year residency to try to get some exposure to something different and found out that I have a face for radio and don't, uh, <laughs> don't really, and did not, and I honestly just didn't enjoy the way the media looked at things. So okay. I don't think I was planning a big media career, but it was certainly uh, an interesting experience. So I think you just want to expose yourself to as many things as you can, as early as you can, potentially even when you're a medical student. And, you know, you'll probably find that what you want to do changes as you get through your career. So the, the second step, which I think you should do in residency to really impact your career, is to try to be different from everybody else. And everybody's trying to learn emergency medicine. Everybody's studying, trying to kill the in-service, pass their boards, learn how to intubate, all those fun things. But, you know, there's a couple of different very easy ways as a resident to become different from everybody else. One thing I obviously did uh, based on my involvement in RSA was get involved in organizations. So especially if you're at a large residency where people like you, some of the voting for positions on board of directors, you know, there's not that many people that take the time to actually vote. If you've got a big residency class, and like I said, people like you, you could have a pretty good chance of winning some elections. So I think you should keep an eye out for organizations that you support their mission and vision. And when elections come up or there's opportunities to join committees, you should give it a shot. I also think that there's a kind of a hidden truth about committees and boards, and people kind of assume that if they get on them, they're going to have tons of work that they have to do, when after having spent years and years on boards, really the truth is that most people that get on them kind of disappear and don't really do a whole lot. If you have just enough initiative to promise you're going to do one thing a year, you'd probably be one of the most productive people on the board or committee that you'll find. So another thing I've already mentioned is to try to get involved in the hospital and the department Mm -hmm. on the administrative side of things. That's a way to differentiate yourself. And I think especially for people with a focus on clinical medicine, if you can demonstrate as a resident that you're willing to do that, you know, a lot of people just want to work shifts and go home. But if you're willing to get yourself involved in the material aspects of the hospital and be an active member of the medical staff, you could potentially be somebody very attractive to independent group or, you know, a practice that is competitive when it comes to trying to get a job there. It's really important for independent groups to be good citizens in their hospitals. That's one way that, you know, we in AAM advocate for people to kind of protect themselves from losing contracts and things like that. Did you go about getting involved in hospital committees by approaching your residency director or staff that you worked with? Well, in our, in our case, we really had, usually you would get, you know, there'd be an announcement or an email of openings, or what you'd find is, you know, there'd be a resident senior to you that was on a committee, and that person was going to graduate before you, and you could go to the resident and say, hey, you're on that committee, I, I'd like to replace you, and they'd smile from ear to ear, because it's, ver- <laughs> it's very tough sometimes to get somebody to take over for you before you leave. 
So volunteer instead of being voluntold. Yeah, essentially. There's a lot of volunteering in the, in the military. So <laughs> volunteering is good. Another way to differentiate yourself is with medical publishing. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about how hard it is in, mm-hmm. in the reality. Especially nowadays, there's a lot of publications that are essentially just openly asking for publications to be sent in. These aren't the New England Journal of Medicine, but there's, you know, especially with the advent of blogs and newsletters, you know, you start with that low-lying fruit, and next thing you know, you're publishing peer-reviewed journals. And in addition, a lot of people don't realize that most academic medical centers have librarians that'll do a lot of the work for you when it comes to researching. Generally, you have access to medical editors, so if you think that your English isn't up to speed or you don't write quite as well, you usually have some free help available wherever you are. That makes it a little easier to get published in some of these publications. So obviously in RSA, you guys have your blog, and AEM has its newsletter, Common Sense. These would just be two examples of low-lying fruit when it comes to trying to get publications. And I know from the RSA perspective, we're, all, we're always looking for submissions. So it would be a great opportunity for someone to get started. Yeah, unlike you know most peer-reviewed journals, which are overwhelmed by the number of, of submissions that they get. So I think, I think those are really the kind of things that you need to do. And especially now, the impact you can make by just starting a blog or a podcast, even if it was something very focused, which you would think might have a narrow audience, nowadays there's so many people online that you could really build yourself quite a reputation. If you showed residents now in emergency medicine a picture of Judith Tintinale or Peter Rosen, a lot of people wouldn't know who they were. But if you showed them a picture of Scott Weingart, they'd know. Right. And so that, that's just really impactful and powerful for people. One other opportunity that I think residents should keep an eye out for is becoming a peer reviewer. All you have to really do is just survey the journals, and most of them will honestly put out like just open calls. Hey, if you want to be a peer reviewer, just send your CV in, and as long as you've published something, even it could be something as simple as a case report or an image, it's generally easy to become a peer reviewer. One other, other thing that you can do as a resident is really try to establish yourself as an expert in something. And probably the easiest thing is to just do a fellowship. Because as soon as you do a fellowship, you're almost instantaneously an expert. You know, I did an ultrasound fellowship mostly because I wasn't happy with my skills coming out of residency. Mm-hmm. And one year later, I'm the ultrasound expert. It was easy to do. And, you know, it's just a way to really e- instantly create your niche. And I think what people have to keep in mind, too, is that There's a lot of other strange fellowships out there you wouldn't normally think. Everybody knows about ultrasound and EMS and toxicology, but there's things like legal medicine fellowships and clinical forensic medicine fellowships that emergency physicians can do. There's a whole list of them on the SAM website, so it's just a real easy way to differentiate your career. Another thing to consider is trying to become a speaker. Again, I don't think it's as hard as people think it is. You know, AAM, for instance, has the open microphone sessions. If you win, you get to speak at the national conference. Honestly, the way I got to do it was I volunteered to organize the meetings. And it's generally easy to put yourself as a speaker when you're in charge of the meeting. So I never did win the open mic sessions, but I was in charge of the meeting. So amazingly, I was a speaker. And I imagine if you start to become an expert in a field, it makes it easier than to become a speaker in a in a national conference. I think there's no doubt about that. One year before my fellowship, I would have had a heck of a time trying to talk about ultrasound and during my fellowship and after it would have been very easy. So in in summary, when it comes to things you can do to be different, I think you can look at organizations, hospital or emergency department involvement through committees, publishing and some of the low-lying fruit, peer review, fellowships, and speaking engagements.
I think the third step to being different as a resident is, and this is an underappreciated aspect, is that when you're doing all this stuff, you have to track it. So what I've had is I've, I've had a CV that I update monthly. I mean, it's on my Google Calendar, which essentially drives my life. And whenever opportunities come up in the Navy, I essentially instantaneously can fire off an updated CV. And, you know, this is one aspect of life where size does matter, I think. If you have a CV, the, the, the more regularly you update it, the more things are going to be in there because it's just human nature. If you don't do it regularly, you're going to forget. And I think if you're, if you're slanting toward the academic career, one thing I didn't do right away is you really also need to have an educator's portfolio because as time goes on, if you want to apply for promotion to associate professor or professor academically, you're going to need to have an educator's portfolio. And if you just Google educator's portfolio, you can find some good examples. But unfortunately for me, I waited about five or six years before I started mine, and that was not a fun process. So I would highly recommend you start a CV. If you're academic, you start your portfolio. And YPS actually offers a CV review service that you can find online on their site. Great. I think the fourth of the six steps is to really build a financial career. A lot of decisions you make early on in your career are really going to put you in the right place financially down the line. Lucky for me, I got smart about money pretty early, so I'm pretty happy with where I am. I I write the personal finance column for Common Sense for our, our newsletter. And you want to look at your insurance. Everybody knows they need health insurance and auto insurance or renters and homeowners insurance, but some of the things people really need to look at early on would be umbrella liability insurance, which really protects you. You can actually get sued. You know, if your dog bites somebody and they get necrotizing fasciitis, you can be sued. Even if you're a brand new out of residency, you you have a net worth of negative $200,000, you can be sued for future income. And you obviously, as a physician, have a huge future income stream. So everybody probably needs between $1 and $5 million of umbrella liability insurance. And it actually comes pretty cheap. I have $3 million. I pay less than $700 a year for it. Disability insurance is another thing people forget about. People like to think about life insurance all the time, but the actual chance that you'll get disabled, significantly impacting your ability to earn, provide for your loved ones, is, is significant. And the earlier you can buy disability insurance, a lot of times, a lot cheaper it is. I struggled to get disability insurance because I was in the military. They, for some reason, don't <laughs> want to insure me, but I have some through the Navy but not enough. It really wouldn't cover a doctor's income. By the time I was able to get it, because I, it took me so many years, I had developed a herniated disc in my neck. And so I couldn't get it without a rider that, you know, wouldn't cover my neck. Exclusionary part of the policy. So the earlier you can get things before you develop these kidney stones and, you know, herniated discs and whatever else people get, the, the cheaper your insurance will be and, and the more likely you'll be covered down the line. You also need to think about life's emergencies. Typical recommendation is to have somewhere between three to six months of living expenses, and that's the key word, you know, stashed away someplace easy to get to, like a money market fund, checking account, savings account. The word expenses is important because, you know, not really necessarily three to six months of income, but there is truly an emergency. You can probably scale back your expenses significantly. You just want enough to cover which you'd consider, you know, the the essentials. You know, you probably don't need to cover your $6 Starbucks latte every day because if you have an emergency, you probably won't be doing that anymore. So it's not really as much money as people think. And nowadays, you know, I I never, luckily for me, due to the Navy, I never had any student debt. I think everybody knows that students nowadays, on average, unfortunately, carry often more than $200,000 of debt. 
But nowadays, it's really easy. To, you know, there's companies that will refinance your student debt, and I'm not going to claim to be the expert on that. But if you have significant student debt, you need to get smart on it. You know, there's the loan forgiveness programs if you work for a nonprofit, as well as there's companies now like SoFi and others that will refinance your student loans, often with a much lower rate. And I personally think the easiest way to get smart on that is to go to the whitecoatinvestor.com. It's just whitecoatinvestor.com. It's probably the best resource out there for people who want to get financially educated. It's got a focus on physicians and other high-income individuals and happened to be started by an ex-Air Force emergency physician. And Mm -hmm. I think if anybody out there has student debt, they need to go there and get smart on it. Another thing you can do is uh, everybody really needs to do is you can also read about this at the White Coat Investor is, is maximize your retirement accounts. I mean, from early on in your career, the more you can put away, the sooner you're going to reach your financial goals. And what, while everybody else out there is going to say, hey, you need to put away 15% of your income for retirement, most educated medical professionals that are into finances would recommend 20% as a bare minimum. We kind of had a lot of school. We start earning later. Right. And 15% is going to virtually guarantee you're just going to work until, you know, you're 65 years of age or older. So the more you can put away, the sooner you'll hit the phase of your life where you can be happy doing as much or as little as you want. And I think personally that takes care of a lot of the burnout issues that we have in our specialty that some people at least think we have in our specialty. So I really recommend, and bottom line is go to the White Coat Investor. I think it's the best resource. He has a book. I think you should buy it. It's like, you know, 11 or 12 bucks on Amazon and read it. And if you're not a financially minded or inclined person besides using the White Coat Investor, what are your thoughts on getting a financial advisor early on? I think you should go to the White Coat Investor and read about it or read some of my columns and Common Sense. They're all on there on the website. I think most physicians probably would benefit from having one, but they need to make sure they have the right kind and mm-hmm. that they understand what fees they're paying to that financial advisor, whether that financial advisor is really acting in their best interest. Not everybody's like me. I pretty much do it myself, but I read probably four or five finance books a year, got my MBA, and it's just become a hobby for me. Okay. So wrap up here, fifth step, I I think you need to find a mentor when you're a resident. I think you just need to try to look into the future, like we talked about, figure out what kind of area of medicine you want to be in, see who you want to become and ask that person or persons if they'll help you, you help guide your career. I always wanted to be a residency director. Turned out I, I never actually did become one. But one of my, you know, my significant mentors was Dr. David Tannen. He was my residency director on the back half of my residency. And whenever I had an issue or had to bounce something off somebody, I, I would go to him. And it, it, really, it really benefited me. Finally, I think this is maybe one of the biggest lessons I, I certainly didn't learn right away, is that you, know, you need to make sure you maintain your work-life balance. Even early in your career, you need to say no. You know, it takes you back to that first step, assessing your career aspirations. If somebody's trying to get you to do something and, you're, and you either aren't going to like it or you don't really think it's taking you in the direction you really want to go, then you should probably say no. And you may feel like, people feel like they can never say no, but they really need to learn to say no. And another thing that I I did pretty early on in my career was my wife basically has veto power. If something (laughs) significant comes into my life, I mean, I'll talk to her about it. We'll talk about how much it's going to impact our life, how much more of a burden she'll have to carry because I'll be working X number of hours a week, things like that. And I think your significant other, if you have one, has to have veto power and the ability to say no. So just to summarize, I really think there's 
Six steps to impact your career during residency. First, you got to make an honest assessment of your career aspirations, try to figure out where you want to go. Second, you want to pursue opportunities to be different from everybody else. Three, you want to create a CV and potentially an educator's portfolio as early as you can so that, you know, that size matters, that you're going to record everything you do, and it's going to be, before you know it, in a few years, it's going to be a lot longer than if you never created it and never updated it. Fourth, you really need to get smart about money. Again, I, I point people toward the White Coat Investor. I think it's probably the greatest resource out there. You got to get a mentor or multiple mentors. You know, who do you want to be? Find that person and ask them to, to help you out and maintain that work-life balance as best as you can. You got you to learn to say no. And I think really the best advice is if you're not going to like it or it's not going to really steer you toward your career aspiration, then you, you should just say no and your significant other has veto power. Great. I'm happy to answer any questions you have. Just one more question. I know getting involved early in starting in residence or even as a med student, some of these things, but for those of us who may be getting closer to either graduating residency or just out as a physician, would you recommend these same steps to get going or do you need to readjust the plan for starting a little later in your career? I really don't think these steps are probably no different for a residency or a medical student or, or an attending who's beginning their career. I, I really think they're the same. There might be some subtle differences. You might, especially if you've already, you've already taken a community job where there's no residence, it might be a little strange for you to say, hey, I want to start publishing. But you could, though. I mean, becoming a clinical expert in a community site where there's no residence will potentially take your career in all sorts of different directions. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate Dr. Show for spending his time and sharing his wisdom. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.